Hey folks, and welcome to our Gem Pursuit podcast, where we say out with the new and in with the old. I'm here today with our co-host, Elise Ketcher. Uh, we're going to be doing a five part series where we're going to be looking at diamonds, sapphires, emeralds and rubies and a surprise gemstone at the end. Elise, you want to take us through what we're going to do today? Of course, Matthew. Today we're going to be looking at gemstone identification of diamond, the history and law surrounding diamond, how we can value these beautiful gemstones, our, of course, our very important trade secrets and famous diamonds throughout history. Sounds wonderful. Very excited to get going. Uh, let's get stuck into it. Elise, uh, how are you today? I'm feeling great, Matthew. How are you? Did you? Yeah, I'm feeling wonderful. I'm feeling wonderful. I was excited to actually do this podcast because I think um, anybody, even if you're not into jewellery or antiques, you'll know, you will have heard about diamonds and certain famous ones. And, and I suppose one of the questions people always ask is, how do you know? Because they're so small and valuable. Like, you know, diamonds, even very small ones, if they're good quality, they can be very valuable. For you, how do you go about identifying the real deal, the real McCoy uh, diamonds? Well, I know that there's a lot of different tests that people would say to do to identify a diamond. But um, for me, I don't really use uh, gem uh, ID testers. Um, I've been more brought up in within the industry to use my eyes. So to really look for the the natural things that a diamond displays and get to know the stone very close up. So for me, identification is all about using the 10 times magnification loop. Like I, that is exactly what I would use to identify the majority of gemstones. Um, and when I'm looking at a diamond very close up, there's a few things that I look for. So number one, I will look around the edges of the diamond to see how it has been made into the circular shape or whatever shape it is made into. Usually on what that is called the girdle, usually oh, on yes. the girdle, you can find um, little indicators of a natural skin. So the the original rough surface of the diamond, which are called naturals. So the, so. Skin, the skin of the diamond, that's a, I've actually never heard of that term before. Um, yeah, naturals are, are uh, I suppose, what you can call them. So what? Yeah. And they'd be on the girdle, I suppose. Yeah, because they probably wouldn't be polished off. I think sometimes people leave them on to, so you can identify it as a natural diamond because they're quite distinctive yeah um, but also for um if for instance you want to when you're a diamond cutter you want to ensure that you get the most out of the rough material so you if it will improve yield by leaving a little bit of the original um, skin or the rough surface of the diamond you do but this is a real proper indicator of a natural diamond um, whereas on something that's synthetic or something that is um, a, a cubic zirconia or a simulant, as they're known, those particular stones will never have that. They'll never have those natural, um, those that natural skin on them. Yes, yeah, and synthetics probably is um, it's probably a relatively recent one that everyone in the jewelry business has to be aware of and. Synthetic diamonds are, uh, when it comes to identification, 
Um, that probably is one of the most tricky ones lately because they are, I mean, they're, they're diamonds. They're atomically, genetically, whatever way you want to say it, they are diamonds. So, yeah, so that, that actually is a great little tip on the girdle. They won't have the natural, uh, the naturals uh, left on the edge of the girdle. And I think as well, the loop, the, the loop is the key one. I mean, we have, uh, well, I mean, we have different gadgets around here that you can use, gem testers, um, Chelsea filters, well, that's not really for diamonds, but for, for other gemstones. But, um, but yeah, the loop really is one. I know we got some uh, nice, high-quality loops lately. Um, I can't remember what they're called, triplet Hawkeyes or, yeah. or something like that. But, but they're, they're perfect. This is the thing is it's not just about like the the girdle facet junctions are another thing for identification diamonds being one of the hardest materials on the planet means that when you cut a diamond and when you polish it you can get very very extremely sharp junctions on those facet edges you can't get that on on the the majority of the simulants that are out there. So it means that you have kind of curved facet edges that you can identify on something that isn't a diamond. You can also find um, specific inclusions, which are crystal inclusions, which are only found in diamond. You can also um, find uh, not just naturals, but brutein. Brutein is the good, yeah. Yeah, brutein yeah, look, is like to look for that especially if you're looking for an old stone yeah you'll find the bruting that's uh that's and that's when uh if you're looking at the girdle you'll see it looks kind of like sandpapery mm-hmm. uh rather than polished or, or sometimes they're faceted that modern stones will be faceted uh and actually just to, to before we leave the the topic of the loops actually just when i was thinking about those new ones that we got the I suppose those ones we paid, I think they were nearly, they were about 350 euro or something each. And you can buy a loop for a tenner, you know? So, and when people are thinking, what, God, what's the difference? Really, it's just the the field of vision with those really good loops. It gives you like a broad field of vision so you can see clearly a larger piece of the stone. With the really cheap ones, you kind of, you can only see a very, very tiny piece is in focus at any given point in time, which is if you're, I mean, if you're a, if you're a collector or an occasional uh, antique fair goer, you come into, you go shopping in an- antique shops, antiquing, I think the word is, um, look, that, that'll probably be fine. But if it's your everyday most important tool, it is probably worth investing in that. I mean, you'd be better off, I think, having a really good loop rather than a, a gem tester. I think it'd be, would be one. But yeah, but go and but you're right. Yeah, the girdle, the brooded ones, great indication. It's an old stone, actually. And um, I would just say as well to just look at a piece. Like you can even, I know, I, I guess it's a little bit more difficult to, um, to do it with a diamond without having been exposed to seeing so many of them. But you can see with diamonds next to something that isn't um, a diamond, you can see how it actually performs. Yes. So it, it has this very... Um, clear kind of white bright light that comes out of it which is known as uh, brilliance and then you've also got the breakup of the spectral colors which comes out through the stone which is known as fire yes so both of those two uh, the combination of those two um, kind of phenomenons I would say 
always kind of capture people's eye and this is what's made diamond specifically um so alluring through history is that kind of quality quality that they have to uh use light in that way yeah if you have yeah if you have uh something to compare to you'll see it and yeah, nothing does sparkle like a diamond. I think if you have like a cubic zirconia or a mosinite, you might think if it was just by itself that it actually looks good, but it'll perform really poorly compared to a diamond. And also, they don't really last. And I think what you said about the, the facet junctions. So you can see on diamonds, the facet junctions are super crisp. Uh, and if there are genuine diamonds, they won't uh, they won't abrade or rub so if you see abrasions on the stone or if you see the the facet lines are not crisp anymore it's it's probably not a diamond i'd say now i mean obviously if it was very worn very very hard over a long period of time that would be happen so if you see a little a little buff mark on your diamond don't worry <laughs> straight away but it, it is an indication and actually looking at the piece for me i think that if i had a rule of thumb that is accurate a lot of the time uh, I think it would just be look at the metal. Because if you're in 18 karat gold or platinum and you see stones that look like diamonds, there's a very good chance that they are. Uh, not always, obviously, for different reasons. Um, but, I mean, sorry, because there's a lot of people that make 18 karat settings with mosinites and so on, but it's a good rule of thumb. Um, and if you have 9 karat, it's, I mean, almost certainly not going to be diamond or it's going to be low grade diamond. Yeah. So yeah. or small diamonds, yeah. You would never see a one carat, um, very very high quality diamond in nine carat uh, yellow gold today. Um, but that's the thing. I remember in one of the car boot sales over in England, a very 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 large diamond was actually found in a silver setting and was sold for like eighty pounds or something like that. And it turned out to be like a five. 0.6 carat diamond yes but that was a very very old setting and it was silver so they thought that it was you know fake yeah, but i mean there's, there's it's a rule of thumb there, but <laughs> there's going to be one of those there's going to be one of those uh, hopefully I don't know, we sleepers find it. if you want to call it yeah hopefully yeah yeah no <laughs> hopefully you find it yeah but yeah i mean yeah i saw well, it wasn't that spectacular now but i saw one in a nine carat it was actually a funny a lady who was trying to sell her engagement ring um she no longer required it and uh it was a nine carat ring and it, it wasn't a, a diamond actually. So I think she probably dodged a bullet there in that sense. But <laughs> um, I mean, there's lots of technical times, but even in the most you know, well kitted out lab with like any sort of equipment, um, the best the best way of identification is a loop or a microscope and the gemologist. <laughs> So once we've identified something is a diamond, which uh, is I a mean, daily task, is a daily task. Yeah, very important <laughs> one. Yeah, and all, all of our stones do do we do uh, we do test them, um, and they're not like other gemstones in that they are actually created billions of years ago, deep within the Earth's crust. Um, whereas other gemstones are made much more recently, more into the surface of the, of the Earth in different kind of uh, volcanic rock and volcanic activity. But in human history. I think it is very interesting, like diamonds, how they've they seem to be attached to a lot of the biggest events in history. And obviously, there's some famous diamonds that we'll talk about at that. But in terms of the history of diamond, what what kind of points stick out to you? I think it's really important to note with diamonds that um, 
they were relatively difficult to get for a long time because of um, the sourcing. We didn't have a we didn't have a large source of diamonds and they were all alluvial deposits, which means that they were only found in waterbeds or dried up waterbeds, which meant that they didn't understand where they were coming from. So they had no idea that they could mine for diamonds underground. So we had centuries of, um, in India where the diamonds were first discovered centuries where they were only being mined in those water deposits. Yes. So, um, that, you know, and then from that there became, there came many different myths surrounding diamonds. So the, you know, they believed that uh, diamonds were created through uh, lightning striking rocks and they believed that there was an invincibility. Not, not true. Not true. <laughs> no, it's not true. <laughs> yeah. I wish it was. Um, they believed that it was, you know, it was because of its hardness and its durability. They believed that if they wore diamonds, that they would have a sense of invincibility. So we see, um, you know, in very early history, we see diamonds actually in breastplates of, of war, of war uniforms for protection because they believed that they would be invincible from wearing it. The, uh, I didn't know that. I've heard that with rubies, actually, but yeah. probably both, I'm sure, because um, rubies are also, and we have another uh, podcast about rubies and have their own history, but, um, and I think, was it one of the Romanoff children, um, which obviously a very sad story, funny enough, I, know, I watched the uh, summary of it on Netflix the other day, but they, when they were executed, uh, there were, because they had diamonds sewn into their clothing, uh, some of the children actually survived the firing squad and uh, they actually then I think the people ran in with bayonets and even then uh, because they're so hard you know they actually provided a lot of protection but I mean it, there's a lot of famous diamonds that were in that collection but these were actually packets of diamonds that were sewn into their clothes so a bit morbid but yeah that's uh, in another way kind of how they were worked but and it's interesting you said about India India and I, I had a quick research there India was one of the main was sorry was kind of if you want to call it the original place where a lot of the original diamonds came yes. from um and then they were for quite a few years that was the only one brazil then i think took over for about 150 years up until about the late 1800s yeah so 1700s is where when brazil kind of took over and it's funny because when you lose a source because india was drying up at that stage when you start to lose the source it's funny how quickly you find another one yeah because <laughs> yeah. that's what they did well, they, they needed, basically they, to, I think. they had a uh, very little coming out of india and then um they were founded in brazil yes in the 1700s um, and they're kind of and although i know um diamond diamond is a diamond but the those stones from india and brazil do have like a different look to me uh though i could never quantify exactly why it is but I, they seem to have a different the brazil sorry the indian ones have a more like watery kind of a a look and uh, the brazilian ones are well that that feature is absent uh, and then following that it was in the in the 1860s they started mining uh in south africa which is when i think the industrial real industrial level of diamonds started being mined definitely i think that one th one really important thing to uh, to mention as well is that when you 
when you actually mine for diamonds underground in kimberlite like they do um, in South Africa, they actually have to go in and remove this ore and then kind of break it up and find diamond within the rock. The main differences that I've seen between the Indian deposits, the Brazilian deposits and South Africa is that the Brazilian and um, Indian mines were both alluvial mines. So they both came through waterways, which meant that the rough diamond had to resist all of the kind of where that it would receive going along these waterways. So it means that, you know, the dross of the, of the group kind of gets left behind because it gets broken off and it gets, you know, you get the very best material because it's been traveling through this waterway for many, many years. So what's left is the very best of the best. And if you see, um, in South Africa now or in Africa, the waterway that follows through from the Kimberley mines, which is where the majority of the mines, um, uh, you know, where they dig up all of the, these stones. If you look all the way down to the shores of, I think it's uh, Nambia. Namibia. Namibia. Oh, yeah, yeah where they have the diamond deposits on the ocean floor. Yes. They've had those diamonds are extremely beautiful and they're very very hard wearing because they've traveled all the way down that waterway into the ocean and have had to go through all of the wear that you will see possible to get to that that particular point. Okay, well, taking that out though, does that mean that you could find diamonds nearly anywhere? Because if they went out into the ocean, Obviously, in very small scales, because, I mean, I think you have to mine several tons of rock to find even a small stone. Um, you know, if they if they washed out into the Atlantic Ocean there, they could have been taken anywhere, really. I mean, obviously, ocean currents would probably mean they'd, like, accumulate in a certain place. But there is a remote chance that they could be... Uh, so it could be a few ones that strayed from the herd. But here's here's a good one for you. In terms of, uh, so in diamond, diamonds as in engagement rings, have you any idea of the first diamond engagement ring? Now, I know we're doing going to do a little bit of trivia in a few minutes. But I actually do know this one. Oh, it's one of the... on your notes, is it? <laughs> it's Archduke Maximilian gave a, a diamond engagement ring to Mary of Burgundy. And it was an M and the M was encrusted with diamonds. Wow. And that's no notes or anything there. No, that's, no. that's impressive recall. That's off the top of my yeah, head. <laughs> that's it, yeah. Wow, that's it, yeah. And that's in 1477, which is obviously uh, 553 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Drum roll. Yeah, no, no, no. I actually think it's 543 years ago. That's uh, that's um, That was actually quite a long time. Obviously, they're popularized as, you know, the single stone solitaire. I mean, they, you'd see a lot of them in kind of, I think, Edwardian times, 1900 on. And one final point, and actually an interesting thing about uh, the history of diamonds as well, is that they were first, or that was the first recognized, uh, like, you know, if you ask them what was the first diamond engagement, it would be, uh, you know, Maximilian of Austria. But... They have evidence that the ancient Egyptians wore diamonds as they wouldn't have called it engagement rings, maybe betrothal rings. Um, and then they reckon the Greeks copied 
uh, the Egyptians. And then the Romans, there is clear evidence of uh, Romans using uh, diamonds as, you know, presentation rings or, you know, what they might call engagement rings. And that's the first clear-cut evidence of it. But the, the go-to one is, is 1,500 years later than it, when it really became established as the gem of, you know, fidelity and yeah. permanence, I think, yeah. And definitely um, we know that the ancient Romans used uh, diamonds as well as like an engraver. So they used to wear them like in their original form because they didn't know how to cut it because it was so hard. So um, they would use the original point of it to actually engrave things. Um, we also see in Roman literature, it, mat- it mentions that Cupid's arrows were actually tipped with diamonds really? as well. Oh, so that's, um, that's quite sweet as well, because we always think of diamond now associated with love. Whereas in these particular times, it was more about power. So diamond kind of represented more power, invincibility, um, strength and, uh, you know, success whereas today it kind of um it does mean those things but more in in terms of 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 a couple so the the diamond represents more the strength of a relationship and love and nurturing and all the rest of those wonderful things but with all of that considered and it's this is a tricky one i think people ask us all the time is how do you actually value diamonds? You know, because the, there is an established uh, four C's, I think, which the GIA introduced kind of in the 50s. But from your point of view, what do you really look for when you're putting a value to a gemstone, a diamond gemstone? The four C's, I think, can be a little bit of a two-edged sword. Um, it was brought out by the GIA to kind of like bring a standard... Um, to the industry where people were basically making up their own value, saying that this is a, a double A or a triple A yeah. or, you know, making up the the value as they went along. So it was standardized through the GIA and became a kind of worldwide thing, which I think is great when you know and understand how to read it. Now, because we live in a society now where, you know, if you were at school, A, B or C is the only grades that you really want to be achieving. Otherwise, it's considered a failure. Um, And, you know, in 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 diamond terms. Yeah, sorry. D in the in the leave and search, as far as I remember, is actually a a pass as well. But yeah, any 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 would be a failure. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, they're lenient. Not that I got any Ds in the leave. I was going to say, got few, I got a few. I was <laughs> yeah. like, they're lenient over here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so, you you know, we, we always kind of strive for the first kind of group uh, of, of grades on anything because we want it to be considered high quality. But that can be very misleading when it comes to diamonds. And that's what, you know, that's why I say it's a double-edged sword because it's great that we have this system, but at the same time, people can get caught up on it. Yes. And I think uh, it's always very important to remember that uh, it can be hard and there are people who do it. So I'm not, I'm not saying everyone doesn't, but it can be hard to actually have very objective information about diamonds because 
a lot of the people kind of focus on the aspects of the diamond that would suit their narrative, if you know what I mean. So, um, whereas, I mean, fundamentally, you look at the diamond and you look at it and you think, is this a beautiful stone? If it appeals to you, that... I mean, you want to make sure you're getting what you paid for, but that really is the most important thing. But I always find, like, for example, uh, a modern jeweler always tend to focus on cut grade because it, it, modern stones show up well on cut grade. They, they can obviously be high in color and clarity, but they really, the price jumps quite substantially when you start getting into those stones. So um, so they'll kind of maybe drop down a little bit on, co- on color and clarity, but focus on, you know, we have a great cut grade. Whereas with the antique stones, they're not really cut for a modern cut grade. Um, it's like a square peg on a round hole. Modern round stones, uh, the grading system for those are specifically designed for them. I mean, it's really, it's... Uh, it's as if you wanted to grade a car as a bicycle. It just wouldn't work. How how good is this car at being a bike? It you know it's not the same thing. So uh, whereas the old cuts uh, they're graded the same on color and clarity and carat weight, um, but it's just a, a totally different kettle of fish. So I mean, there's a lot of things that we can talk about when it comes to value. Um, value always has to do with um, with basically what you can see supply and demand and how rare it is we have to always remember the rarity factor um and you know when it comes to old cuts when it comes to these antique pieces they were cut over 100 years ago so we're looking at things that are only getting rarer and rarer as time goes on so that also adds to the value um it also has the way that I like to look at it is cut. It can be really important because even though a diamond might be, uh, you know, quite yellowish in color or it might have a few inclusions in it, if you cut a diamond in a, in a very beautiful way, that diamond can, you know, be better than any other any D flawless stone that there is out there, if that stone hasn't had the same kind of um, care and attention brought to it. And the way that I like to think of it is um, when we look at the 16th century, we look at a piece of marble that is considered worthless, but then we see Michelangelo turn that piece of marble into the statue of David. It becomes something completely invaluable so you know you i don't have think to- yeah you can't separate the value of diamonds from the jewelry as well that it's in Definitely. it's the two of them that work together so like the what's in what's there from creation which is obviously the stone mm-hmm. and then it's craft that changes it from a rough crystal to a polished diamond and then how it's set and yeah as you said all of those things come into it but also as you said the age and the rarity uh, and I think particularly, you know, and royal jewels, if you see, uh, this is not a diamond, but Marie Antoinette's per, uh, natural pearl pendant sold for a phenomenal yeah. sum. I can't remember exactly uh, what it went for, but it was it was sold well above the actual value of the constituent parts right. based on its royal provenance. And that is a, that is actually a very important thing to value yeah. as well. So Yeah, and provenance, like you said, provenance uh, of a piece, if it's connected to a special time in history, um, will always 
also become, you know, a, a part of the value because it, it's a part of the piece's whole story. So I think like to sum it up in terms of what is value, value is the story that the piece tells, the beauty of the piece, the rarity of the piece, and um, almost always how much you love it yourself. So those things all have to kind of work together for it to, and then also, of course, sit within the the four C's, which is what is the overall umbrella of value. But those other elements of it are extremely important to ensure that you've got something that you also love to wear. Yeah. And I think that sums it up. Yeah. You have to love to wear it. If you don't love wearing it, there's no point. Yeah. I mean, it's like if you're buying art, you buy the art that you love. Okay, it's got to be investment quality as well, mm-hmm. but uh, you have to love it. And I just look looking there, it was the pearl, Marie Antoinette's pearl sold for uh, $36 million uh, and it was valued at $2 million before the sale. Yeah. So that'll just show you the royal provenance and what, what kind of it can get. But um and that obviously is a, is an auction. An auction is part of the jewellery trade, um, and I think from working in the in the industry for quite a while, you do pick up you know a few trade tips, a few little hints <laughs> yeah. that helps you kind of value things and work in the business. Um, so, what would be your trade tips, Matthew Eldon? Well, I can have a few trade tips. Uh, <laughs> obviously, uh, obviously, we can't disclose everything. Uh, but actually, do you know what though? Uh, what I've realised uh, in in the business is that it's it really is the so it's so challenging. I think, and that's why I love it is that you're always learning. Uh, every day, you, you can pick up something new, and. Uh, e- e- it is by handling the stuff, by working with the goods. You could write a book on it, but I don't think unless you were handling it, you'd really pick it up. So that's why I actually have no problem sharing my knowledge with people for what, well, a little bit of knowledge I might have. I have no problem sharing it with people. So, um, so when it comes to diamonds, a trade insight, I would, or a trade insight, let me think now. There's, God, there's so many that they pick up one. Well, let's just start with the first one, the, the certification of diamonds. In the trade, I mean, if someone comes in and sells us a diamond, basically, if it's a GIA cert, you kind of are pretty happy with its outcome. You obviously have to make sure it matches the stone. If it's a HRD cert, you're like, yeah, okay, pretty good. We'll look at that. You know, it's probably going to be pretty, pretty accurate. If it's IGI, if it's a modern IGI cert, you think, okay, that as well, pretty reliable. You'd have a little bit of a closer look at it. And then the rest of them, uh, (laughs) the rest of them... I mean, to me, they're, they're guidelines, you know, because let's not forget, uh, as, a, as a trained accountant, I worked in audit for <laughs> audit for a few years, and you probably wonder how I ended up as a, as a jeweler from that. But, you know, audits give opinions. That it's not a fact. And just like diamond reports, they are not a fact. They don't categorically say this diamond is, you know, X, Y, or Z. It is a, an opinion as to the characteristics of it. But the best opinions are, I think, GIA, HRD, and IGI. You know, and again, these are our opinions of the labs. We're not saying this is ever have to make up their own mind. But there is one in the States, I think, as well, which is quite well known. But um, as a trade insight, what I'd say to people is you definitely look at the cert, but it doesn't capture everything. It is an opinion. And you might love a, a diamond that maybe doesn't show up well on a cert. And you might not like one that, you know, has a technically a very good cert. So, yeah, what about yourself? What little nugget of wisdom would you share with us? My trade secret would be that um, 
diamonds are on the open market and you can actually see what they are worth um, through a report called Rappaport. So um, it's a a little bit difficult to understand if you um, don't look at it often. Uh, We in the trade would always be looking at this particular report because it has the value of diamonds on the open market around the world. And you can kind of follow the value of those of the of any diamond at any carat weight, at any clarity, at any color. And it is basically open to the industry and we use it to understand what the pricing is like for diamonds right now. And um, a lot of people don't know about it. It is a trade secret. It is something that we use in the industry a lot. But yeah, I would say if you're if you're going to buy a diamond and you want to know the value of what it is on the open market, the Rappaport will tell you. Yeah, I suppose it's funny not being in trade, you probably wouldn't come across it at all. I would think you'd want to caveat that a little bit in that it's like there is an interpretation to it as well, slightly. Yes, definitely. Um, like fluorescence, I think, for one uh, will affect the value of a diamond, but that's not necessarily up front in the Rappaport magazine, Correct. but it definitely gives yeah. a good uh, a good baseline. And another trade insight is that fluorescent diamonds are, are less valuable commercially, um, but actually there's only a very, very minor subset of diamonds that have fluorescence that are unattractive, in my opinion. Um, most of them are fine. And in fact, in some of the slightly warmer stones, your J, K, L colors, a little bit of fluorescence can actually, I think it gives it a little bit of a lift. It does. Um, in, in natural daylight, it will um, make the stone to appear whiter because of its flore- fluorescence. So like you can, you know, I know a lot of these things kind of probably sound I don't want to be baffling anybody, but because of the the kind of yellowness in a stone, if you look at the stone in artificial light, so, you know, the light within your house when the sun is down, the stone will start to ha- look like it has a bit of a more of a warmer yellowish tinge. But natural daylight has um, UV rays in it. So when you walk outside, that fluorescence masks that kind of yellowish color. So it can actually be, uh, it can actually be a, a really good thing in some stones to have that little, oh, definitely. Yeah. that little mask. Do you remember that five carat one we had recently? Five, it was a five oh six. It actually didn't have a source, uh, but it was it, beautiful. It, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Uh, I we I think I, we assessed it kind of as an end color, and it was a little bit fluorescent. So I mean, it topped up white, and when we say topped up white, it means it looks white from the kind of uh, if you look at it down on your finger. If you look through the side of the stone, I mean, probably we would see the tint a bit more. But that was a beautiful. I mean, that yeah. goes against all the so-called rules, in inverted commas, of, you know, diamonds. And that was a really and special And you have to be careful to kind of stick within like a very rigid box. Like if you do that with anything in life, you'll find that you're missing out a lot of what is outside of that, that those, those lines of 
that you've given yourself. It is a guideline. That's one thing that you have to be really careful when you're looking at the four C's. It helps you to understand value in a very, in, you know, in a boxed sense. You have to also then use your own eyes, your own initiative and, you know, know what it is that you like personally, because what might be beautiful to you might not be beautiful to somebody else and so on. So it's really important to make sure that you take it on face value as well and then use the four C's to kind of guide you in your pricing range. Yeah, I think there are most of the trade insights I could think of Divulge. at the moment. Yeah, I, but a lot, <laughs> a lot of them are just in your, just I suppose like, you know, even some of the things we had earlier, like just having a good loop, like that's a, that, that would oh, really uh, help. You I know? have a so. trade, another trade secret actually. One thing to... Um, if you're if you're going to this kind of mixes in with everything though, um, if you want to be able to tell a synthetic moissanite apart from a diamond, you can look through the kite facet, which is one of the side facets in the diamond or synthetic moissanite. And if you look through that particular facet with your loop and you can see a blurred facet edge instead of a straight line facet edge from the other side. So if you're looking through the stone to the other side, that would be... Um, a that synthetic, would be bad. <laughs> that would be a synthetic moissanite. Yeah. So that's a trade secret. That's how we know straight away how to kind of... Um, tell a synthetic moissanite apart from a diamond without testing or anything just literally looking through that side facet and again like those little hints i sometimes feel like you nearly have to have someone show it to you once but once you've seen it it's uh it's, it's etched in your memory etched in your memory and <laughs> super super useful like um but again from handle from handling the pieces you kind of that's really so important i mean we'd all love to be in a lab environment and you know degrade stones where you have to unset because i remember when i was doing my uh, gia courses in uh, new york they were uh, you know i was explaining to one of the ladies doing the course i was like yeah yeah you know and in the antique shop yeah we just get handed a stone and tell it to grade it like off the top of our head you know and uh, before we buy it because when we buy it it's like you know it's like split decision, you know, yep. if someone says, if some pr- a private individual wants to sell you a diamond, they don't have any paperwork with it, uh, you know, they inherited it and you have to offer them a good fair price for it. Uh, you have to make a split decision uh, grading because obviously the value is, is derived somewhat from grading. And, uh, you know, I was explained to her and this particular lady worked in the lab actually in, uh, in GIA and she was like, what the diamonds are not unmounted yeah. they're not you have to do it straight away she's like oh it takes me you know x y z time to to grade a diamond i was like yep that's how it works just gotta yeah. do it and i would say i would uh i would say you know i think we're pretty good at it here i think we would always be within one grade after our initial assessment we'd know pretty pretty if we know if it's a g or a or H or like a K or an L after our first assessment. So yeah, uh, I mean, I think my biggest in terms of um, my biggest trade secret would be always to stay humble because the thing is, is that this industry, you can never know everything. And if you think that you know everything, that's when you get caught out. So you have to really kind of 
always be open to learning, always be open to kind of learning new things from somebody else who, you know, might have been in the industry a little bit less than you, less time than you, but they may have learned something that you can benefit from. So it's always it's interesting. It keeps you on your toes, but it's really important to make sure that you don't think you know everything all the time. I totally agree. You get it's funny. I've you know, and you go to I talk to some of the dealers that I that I know, and they'll tell you something. You're just like, well, mind blown. Like literally. Yeah. So and it's uh, that's why in a way it's a hard industry to get into. I think because yeah. it's, it is so subtle and so the knowledge is is not readily available in some ways, but. One final trade in so I had there just when you you're saying this is one my father always tells me and one thing you should always think of buying jewellery is that you're better off to spend more and get something really, really good than to try and get something that has a lot of quantity, like a lot of stones or small stones uh, for less. Uh, it's always, always better value to actually s- spend a little bit more and get the really, really good thing um, than kind of go for the cheaper option usually end up getting worse value so someone once told me that as well they said um buy expensive and cry once or buy cheap and cry for the rest of your life yeah (laughs) that's a good one (laughs) you know there's a couple of stories about people who uh who had especially famous diamonds throughout history that have interests in kind of stories and that, that phrase remind me of it um so I was actually just talking about one famous diamond in history that always springs to mind is the Koh-i-Noor. And I think it was the 20, it's the 27th largest cut diamond uh, in the world. And it was uh, originated from India, like the, like we talked about, the, it was one of the kind of original ones. And it is a D-color stone, so it is as white a diamond as you can get. It's, uh, it's also a type 2A, which is also a particular type of purity uh, at an atomical level. It's super, super pure. Um, I mean, it was belonged by lots, a lot of different people actually owned it. And uh, it was when the, when the Persian prince originally saw the stone, his initial reaction was he, he just blurted out Koh-i-Noor, which, which was a mountain, mountain of light. And uh, that's where the name stuck to it. But, but I think it's in, the, uh, it's in the British crown jewels at the moment, although I think the ownership of it is somewhat disputed. Um, yeah, the, the British government insists that the gem was is illegally obtained uh, under the, the last treaty of Lahore, but uh, the Indian government dispute this. So it is somewhat in, um, in dispute, yeah. And Kohinoor, yeah, it's Persian uh, and Hindi-Urdu for Mountain of Light, which I said, which what was, what was exclaimed when, on seeing it um, and by the, the Prince of Persia. So... Uh, very interesting one. Have you come across any famous diamonds in your time or have you one that is maybe your your favourite? Well... Ownership the, or not, I don't mind if you own. <laughs> I, don't, um, I don't ever have favourites when it comes to famous diamonds because there's just way too many of them. Um, and, I mean, why have a favourite when you can love them all? And um, I just I just think that... When it comes to diamonds, I, I just want to give famous diamonds in, in particular. I just want to give people a, a background on 
what would be considered a famous diamond and what's not a famous diamond. The way that you can tell whether a diamond is famous or not is that you don't just call it by its carat weight, but it has a specific name. So like Matthew said, the the Koinor, it has that particular name and it's not known by its carat weight or its color or anything else other than its specific name. So in order to be a famous diamond, you have to have a name. So, you know, each of them are named after something specific to do with their history or where they're found. Um, But I am actually going to test Matthew on his knowledge of the most, well, what I consider to be the most famous diamond in the world because bigger is always better. Um, and (laughs) (laughs) it is the Cullinan diamond. Do you know this one? Do you know this one very Uh, well? The Cullinan, is that in the scepter of the queen? Yes, don't jump ahead, Matthew. I'm going to ask you questions. I hope I didn't just ruin the question. Okay, shoot. So number one, it is the largest, the Cullinan diamond is the largest diamond discovered ever, even up to this point. Um, what did it originally weigh? Get away from your computer. No, yeah, um, <laughs> no. Uh, I'm actually have a, a list of Maori names in front of me here. So, um, is that in the rough crystal state? The rough, the rough, not cut, because it. Uh, okay, I'll. Would it be? It's in the thousands anyway. I'd say it is. Yeah. Uh, I know they got a, one recently from Lesotho, which is a thousand carats. So it's going to be more than that one. Almost three times. Is it? 3,000 carats? Is it? That's it's it's three, pretty big, I guess. It's 3,106.75 carats found in its rough Interesting. form. And what's, and what's the polished? Oh, sorry, but there's more than one Cullinan, though. So. Yes. Yeah. Oh, sorry, so, we're getting ahead of so it. So we're getting ahead, Matthew. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And when was it discovered? I won't like there is an it, exact it sent from date. South, it, it, sent, it was sent from South Africa, so it must have been like 1870s or 1880s, 1890s maybe. It was 1900s. Australia Day in 1905, and for those who aren't Australian, that's the 26th of January. Oh, yeah. So uh, you okay? Shoot, good. And you have already answered my next question, which is where was it discovered? Which is where, Matthew? South Africa. Yes. Do you know the mine name? The Cullinan mine? No. no. <laughs> Close. No, it's the Premier Mine 2. Ah, okay. And it it travelled from there to go to the UK. And how did it travel there? He sent away post. What kind of post? Normal post, not even registered. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's a good one. He got yeah. it. So this is really interesting, actually, because of its uh, enormous value. They, you know, they were absolutely petrified on how they were actually going to get this particular stone from one shore to another. So we're talking, you know, South Africa all the way up to um, all the way up to England. And they were thinking, how are we going to do this? So what they did was they had a ship which had uh, private detectives on the ship. And they had a safe which had 
the exact replica of the stone put inside and locked inside the safe by these detectives. The captain and the detectives did not know that it was a decoy. So they traveled on that ship all the way to the United Kingdom thinking that they were actually protecting this stone when they actually just sent it via post. So it's it's That's, really uh, it's a really cool story. I mean, actually, it's a great story now that it worked out. But I wonder if <laughs> if, if it hadn't worked out, they'd been like, oh, maybe it know. wasn't such a good idea to put a priceless <laughs> diamond through the normal post. But I all's well that ends well, I suppose. Yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah. the, you know, good, it's good. It's a great story. <laughs> a, it's a good thing to say as well because we send things out by post, and I want to say, you know, the largest diamond in the world was sent by post. So don't worry, it was fine, and your mm. ring will be fine <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and Sorry. that was 100 100 years ago 120 years ago exactly so. wow yeah. <laughs> okay yeah. i've got more questions for you matthew oh okay um who was, was it? it named after and don't just use his surname mr cullinan <laughs> um no the cullinan diamond was it named after the uh I mean, was it the, the the owner of the mine, was it? I, Close. It was Thomas Cullinan, who was the mine's chairman. Right, okay. So, lucky okay. guy. I'd love to be, I'd love it to be named after me. Um, And who was the diamond gifted to in the United Kingdom? So, think uh, about the date and who would have been the ruler. Was it gifted to well i'm gonna say edward was it yes yes okay king edward oh, well, you gave me a big help there i think in <laughs> king yeah. edward the seventh received it on his 66th birthday so uh, right. as a gift and so did he, did, he, did he keep it though or did he give it to his wife yeah. he kept it yeah. um yeah. but who was it cut by uh because so, an old company but was that the, was this the one that it was cut and the guy fainted or something like that when yes, he cleaved it? Yes. Well, that's yeah. the that's the the story. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know this this diamond cutter extremely famous even today because of a cut that continues to be. Mr. Asher. Was yes. It? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. Yes. Oh, Joseph oh. Asher was the the cutter of the stone, and he as he was cleaving it. So cleaving is the way that you. Um, break a diamond um along its uh planes so uh along its cleavage planes so basically as he was cleaving it and you can imagine the largest stone in the world um nothing has even come close to the same amount of carat weight as the th the plus three thousand. Oh no yeah he um he tapped it once apparently and then tapped it the second time and the stone broke into eight pieces and he fainted on the ground, which I mean, you would, you probably would, wouldn't you? I think you probably would. <laughs> yeah. I think I, uh, think I would. I yeah. would like oh, eight pieces. Yeah. is like yeah. shattering. Now, it, now, it, we, in now front we had of eight you. diamonds, I suppose, but I don't know if that was their desire to, because I mean, it, what people don't realize, I think sometimes is that those rough crystals, they do lose like a lot in polishing so like your one carat diamond probably could have been like a much bigger rough crystal so um 
so yeah but they were they were very good uh question i didn't realize i I've was on i didn't realize you. i'd be put on the spot i've got but, one more for you oh, right, okay, this, is the, this is the most important question okay let's and see. it is where I, is the cullinan diamond today it's in the scepter of the queen well, one one of one of the Cullinans is all of the Cullinan diamonds are basically with the English royal family. Um, you know, my my favorite uh, part of the Cullinan diamond is actually in a brooch, which is oh, worn right. by the queen quite often, and it's got. A, a drop shape or a pear shaped diamond that dangles down from a very large kind of um, a cushion cut diamond. And they actually call it Granny's Chips, even though the two diamonds are extremely large. They call it Granny's Chips. Well, I think it's all relative, isn't it? So, because <laughs> uh, Royal Collection is, is incredible. So, I, I hope any, everyone listening there uh, uh, could get a, a few of those answers, or if not, uh, now you will. Uh, have a better idea but thankfully just on the off chance i came up with some questions for you actually <laughs> i didn't know you were gonna ask me once but anyway because um, uh, yeah, yeah, diamonds yeah. are in popular culture a lot so um so obviously we know the song uh, the one that shirley bassey sang the song diamonds, diamonds are, forever. are forever um and it was obviously played uh, in a james bond film can you name the film and this of the same name Oh wait! I'm sorry. Who played the actor? I can't even read my own writing. Who played? Who played the actor in the film of the same name? I didn't read out the answer though. So that's good. Um, Diamonds are forever. Is was it Sean Connery? It was. R.I.P. Sean. Bam. So, yeah, that's uh, one out of one. Oh, and he just died. Ninety oh. years old. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it was uh, the first James Bond. Yeah, I think, and. Uh, I think probably the best. I, yeah, I mean, I mean who, we all remember that voice, don't we? <laughs> yes, <laughs> we do. Yeah, I like Pierce Brosnan, an, an Irish one as well. So, uh, uh, and Pierce was very good uh, in James Bond, I think. So, uh, and, and other P- films as well. So, okay, and then who said in 1999 that diamonds are intrinsically worthless except for the deep psychological void they fill? My gosh, whoever wrote that needs to be put down indefinitely. I don't know. Who wrote that? Uh, Nikki Oppenheimer of De Beers. So, um, oh, I'm, Nikki yeah, Oppenheimer, but... you, you ambulance chaser. Well, <laughs> well, I think it's important. Uh, when, when I read that, I, I actually thought, the way I thought about it was, you know, uh, does uh, is how how what we discuss what how do you attribute value and uh, I mean a painting is intrinsically a piece of canvas and you know charcoal or paints which are intrinsically also not worth uh, anything but diamonds obviously have a com- com- immer- uh, an industrial purpose um, but they are a store of value much like money is obviously there's not much you can do with cash but it's the store of value in it i think um yeah but mr oppenheimer said that um and the last one so that's uh one out of two i believe so that's so to get uh, two out of three 66 percent that's a, a pass um so who wrote the famous songs red red wine i'm a believer ub40 and 
Oh, jumping ahead there. Red, red wine. I'm a believer, and you don't bring me flowers. Who wrote the songs? Oh, Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond. Yes. Well bam, done. Bam, yeah. bam, bam. Very good. Bam, yeah. Bam, bam, Excellent. And bam, Neil bam. Diamond and a, a man with with a name of of their famous song that we're discussing today. So all right, popular culture. Your turn. I just gave you the Cullinan diamond information. Now what? we're going to do your, More your oh, diamond okay, pop questions. All right, let's go. Okay. Ready. According to John Lennon in the 1967 song, Who Was in the Sky with Diamonds? In the Sky with Diamonds. That doesn't help, actually, but (laughs) (laughs) hold on, let me just see. Um, Who was the girl in the sky with diamonds? I mean, even John Lennon, was it his wife? (laughs) 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 Uh, Lucy was in the sky with diamonds. diamonds. Anyway. Was that a very um, obvious question? Was okay, it? well, look. Was it? Oh, dear. <laughs> it was, was that, listen to Matthew, was that a very obvious Okay, I think his popular culture knowledge isn't great. Um, diamond is the hardest material on earth, true or false? Diamond is the hardest natural material on earth, yes. Yeah, no, no, no. I didn't ask that question. I said no. material. False. There is. A man-made material which is harder, but it's quite unstable and only produced in very tiny quantities. Correct. Yeah. I don't know what it's called, though. It's called wartzite. Wartzite, yes. uh, Boron nitrate. Yeah, but I think it's, like, very, very difficult to make. uh, And I don't think it's actually, like, a stable compound. But it is extremely hard when they have it, yeah. Okay, lastly, Matthew, you've got one out of two so far, is Samuel Screech Powers was played by which actor in the 90s show Saved by the Bell? Now, you should know this one. I know Screech from Saved by the Bell. Yeah, and what uh, was his, what was his uh, actor? Justin Diamond? Was it? Oh, it was so close. Justin Diamond. So oh, it's like, no. Oh, seriously, that's... Oh, right, well. It it was Dustin Diamond. That was Ah. not a pass. I'm sorry. Yeah. At least not everything's competition, right? It's it's fine. I got the diamond questions right. That's the main thing. Folks, we're going to wrap it up there. I hope you enjoyed our our diamond podcast today. I'd like to thank uh, my co-host Elise for joining me today. Our podcast is on the iTunes store and on Spotify, so you can subscribe. Uh, and our follow us there uh, I definitely recommend because we have a few more coming up we're doing Ruby Sapphire and Emerald uh, and a surprise one at the end as well so I definitely recommend uh, subscribing to our podcast I hope you enjoyed that and uh, look forward to catching you next time all the best bye